Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Okay, so last Sunday we began a, a series looking at Moses, the servant of God. And I've called this series, Moses, the servant of God, um, how God takes, shapes, and uses a life for his purpose. And last week I was looking at, um, if, if you like, a bit of the background, Exodus chapter 1, and um, we began to look at the next phase of the life of the people of Israel, uh, the fact that they were being very faithful to the creation mandate, they were going forth and multiplying, but they were in a perilous situation. Uh, Pharaoh, a Pharaoh had emerged who was um, uh, fearful of the, of the Israelites, really, and as a result was treating them ruthlessly and had come up with this idea of killing all the, the male babies in order to, to sort of stop the, the growth of the people. And I talked about the fact that um, it was the midwives of, of Israel that made a stand, and they weren't fearful of the king of Egypt, and they made a stand by not killing those babies and God bless them as a result. And part of the reason they made a stand was that they were a people of promise. They believed some things about God and it helped them to stand for him. And so today we move into Exodus chapter 2, which is where we take that sort of big picture of what was going on in Israel um, and, you know, just, just the, the king's edict. And we begin to look at a family and it's, it's Moses' family. And if last week those, we were looking a bit about the history, this week we're looking at, if I can entitle this talk, Sovereign Foundations. So these are the things that make up your life, your, your birth, your early years, that you have no control over. That would be called Sovereign Foundations. You, you don't determine where you're born or who you're born to or those very early years of your life. You have no control over those things. They are sovereign in God. And that's what we're going to look at today, Moses' sovereign foundation. So if you have a Bible, um, I'm reading from Exodus chapter 2, just the first 10 verses. Forgive me if the version I'm reading is different to every other version that you might see. It Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went 
and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, your presence is already with us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that we've sensed you this morning. And, and I pray that that sense of you being with us will continue. I pray for revelation. I pray for restoration. I pray for a renewing of all that you're doing in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine, it'd be easier for us, some of us than others, that you are Moses' parents. Because if you only never read chapter 2 of Exodus and you didn't know chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2 doesn't make a lot of sense. And it leaves you with a number of questions because the first thing that happens in chapter 2 is there's a couple that come together, they have a baby, and then a few months later they put the baby in a basket in a river. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense if you don't know chapter 1. But I want you to imagine for a moment that you are Moses' parents. So you're living under the persecution of Pharaoh of that day. That you are living in the reality of it. That it's all around you. No doubt there is a temptation to fear what is going on. So maybe as Moses' father, I come home and and I bring home to Pauline, my wife, a memo, and it says what Pharaoh's wanting to do with the babies, and Pauline's pregnant. And we're like, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? How do we respond to this? What's going to happen? Well, and so initially we hide the baby, but, but as you can hear, babies cry, and you can't hide them forever. Yeah? And so, but you, you hide the baby. Because at, at a moment where there should be great hope and joy in your family, there's great despair and anxiety because of the future. You don't know what's going to happen. Chapter 2 alone does not explain it because it doesn't make any sense. If someone had sat you down before you had children and said, one day you're going to put your child in a basket and you're going to abandon it in a river, you'll go, I'll never do that. Never. You'll have to kill me before I do that. You and I would never have even thought of doing that kind of thing, but we weren't living, we're not living in a time of persecution of the people. And they were living during a time of persecution. And they have this child. They see the child is a fine child. I, I don't think it necessarily means that Moses was any more beautiful than any other child other than to his parents. But there was clearly something about him that made them go, oh, we can't, we can't give him up. We can't. And actually, it's interesting, his parents, though there must have been anxiety, there must have been, what on earth are we going to do? There is also faith. We read in Hebrews, it says, by faith, Moses' parents hid him. They didn't hide him through fear. They hid him through faith. You can see how important faith is. If you don't have faith, you wouldn't do that. But because of faith, they hid him. Because he was no ordinary child, 
And they were not afraid of the king. They were not afraid of the king. So real faith overcomes fear. It trumps fear. Real faith means that somebody tells you to do something and you think, no, 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 that's not God's way. That is not God's way. I will not do that. Real faith allows you to do that. That's what happened to Moses' parents. So much so that they decide we'll take our chances with the Nile. Now just imagine that for a moment. Imagine we're sitting there, we've had this baby and and he's goo-goo-ga-ga and we're all into him and we're thinking, what are we going to do? We'll take our chances with the Nile. Now the Nile is one of the largest rivers in the world and there are crocodiles in the Nile. And there are probably piranhas and other things in the Nile and they're going to take their chances with the Nile. Can you imagine concluding that. Can you imagine that they've got two older children, Miriam and Aaron, we we read about them later, and and saying to your older siblings, right, we're going to take Moses and we're going to put him in a basket in the river. In the river, mummy. Why? Why are you putting Moses in the river? It seems a really odd thing to do if you don't know the story. You can imagine it. I mean, I suppose in the modern day, it'd be like, like us taking the baby in one of those very modern prams and then just putting him outside Brixton Tube in the hope that he's going to be okay. <laughs> Would you really do that? Because you're frightened someone's going to come and knock on your door and take him and throw him in the Nile. So you thought, oh, we'll just put him outside the tube. We'll take our chances with the tube. They had no guarantee of what was going to happen. But they were in desperate times. And desperate times call for desperate measures. So the baby is sent down the Nile. No doubt they prayed and, and they, no doubt they wondered, God, have you abandoned us? Have you abandoned us? Have you left us? Why has it come to this? Why has it come to this? But in their hearts, though they must have asked all those questions, in their hearts... They're not taking their chances with the Nile, they're taking their chances with God. That's what they're really doing. And then we find that they put the baby, we don't know how long the baby was there for, we don't know uh, how many minutes, hours or days Moses was floating down the aisle before Pharaoh's daughter comes along. But she comes along. And it's interesting because here you realise, you begin to see the cruelty of Pharaoh's decree. The cruelty of saying, we're going to throw every child into the Nile because even his daughter won't do it. His daughter has compassion in her heart. She disobeys her father. Her compassion leads to courageous acts. It could not have been easy for her to have made that decision to take Moses in. She finds this abandoned child She knowingly knows that he's an Israelite. Oh, he must be one of those Hebrew children. So she's not unaware of what's been said. And yet, she takes him in and she raises him as a prince. She would have no doubt given him the best that Egypt had to offer. And she wasn't a believer. Sometimes we can create this sort of image in our heads that believers and unbelievers, we're we're so different. This a them and us kind of mentality. And yet here, Pharaoh's daughter shows compassion. 
you think about the life of Moses, for two-thirds of his life, he doesn't live among the people. He lives among people who are not the people of God, but who are compassionate and peaceable towards him. Our world is not to be one of always thinking that every, every unbeliever, they said them and us kind of thing. Remember, the Bible is very clear. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We do not fight people who don't believe. Yeah? We fight what's behind people who don't believe. People who don't believe can show as much compassion. In fact, if you're really honest, and if you knew me a little bit, you'd say, well, that's true of you, Owen, that some unbelievers are the nicest people you will ever meet. Yeah, they're nicer than you and me. Yeah, many, they're much nicer than me. They're, they're less obviously self, they're just nicer. Yeah? And, and Brixton is, is a brilliant place for meeting people who want to get involved and serve in their community. When we began Food Bank, which is coming up to three years ago, and, uh, and, and we started off, and there was, I don't know, there was a few of us in the church who were doing it. There's me and my daughters, and Becky was running it. And, and it was mainly people in the church, mainly Christians around. Three years later, most of the volunteers on Food Bank do not go to church. But, and there's a, there's a waiting list of them. They want to help. People want to support. People show compassion. People show, show kindness to one another. And this is a place where that happens a lot. And we have, um, just along our road, we've got a lady who's a very, one of those very neighbourly ladies. And she's, she's, um, um, uh, she's sort of got involved with, uh, with, with sort of the neighbourhood watch stuff. And she sends out emails to Pauline and, and they're going to do neighbourly things together. Yeah? I'm not that neighbourly. <laughs> yeah? But this lady's really neighbourly. And she came round and then, and in fact, Pauline even offered our house. So we're going to have a neighbour's social sometime this year in our house. People are very, yeah, I'm not that. No, that's fine, actually. I don't, I don't mind. Uh, there is much to learn from people around us who don't know God. And we must understand this. And one of the reasons it's really important is we must understand the fundamental difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not whether you're nice or kind. Yeah? It's not about your actions. You sometimes hear people say, oh, you know, I've met someone, they're so nice, they, they almost seem Christian, but they're not Christian. And you think, no, 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 they don't almost seem Christian. Because being Christian is not about whether you are nice or kind or, or even good but it's about whether you believe. Yeah? But being a Christian and living as a Christian is about growing in maturity. God is making you more holy. He's not making you more nice. Now, please don't mishear me. Don't let me, don't mishear the fact that, you know, oh, he doesn't seem to like nice people. No, I love nice people. But God is not about trying to make you nice. He is maturing you in order that you might be more like Jesus. And that's the fundamental difference, and we must understand that, because otherwise we can sometimes mistake the way people are for some sort of righteousness, and righteousness is not something, as we prayed and sang earlier, that you can do for yourself. You are not righteous because of anything that you have done. If you're a Christian here, you're righteous because of Christ and your belief in him. It's that what, that's what makes you righteous. That's what makes you good. Pharaoh's daughter was not a believer, but actually her compassion saved one. 
So Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby and she, she's beginning to wonder what to do. And then along comes uh, Moses' sister. So clearly part of the plan was that she was going to walk along the bank and find out what happened to Moses in the basket. And she comes to Pharaoh's daughter and she says, shall I get one of the Hebrew women? Shall I get one of the Hebrew women? Now, you must imagine that Pharaoh's, um, Moses' mother and maybe the father were back in their little home and maybe they're praying to God because they don't know what else to do. God, look after him. We've just sent our son. We've abandoned our son. God, help us. God, what can we do about this? We never meant to do that. God, forgive us for doing that. And the sister says, shall I get one of the Hebrew women? And that sounds a good idea to Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, the irony of the situation. God uses this very difficult situation to work out his purposes. And in, in many ways, it, it sums up more than, more than I could in my own, just, just what this whole series is about, how God uses situations to work out his purpose. So the child ends up being raised in those early years by his own mother, and she gets paid to do it. She never would have thought that. When her and the father were sitting there discussing what to do, she would never have said to him, maybe Pharaoh's daughter will find Moses, and maybe she'll send for me, and maybe she'll give me a wage. Oh, yeah, let's do that. She never would have considered that. That would not have been in her head. It might have been difficult for her, because in the end, although she was getting Moses back, she had lost Moses. He was now the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he was given a second chance of life, a better education than she could have ever provided. She had to give him up. But actually, what all those emotional attachments, she had to let that go. A bit like Hannah with Samuel. When uh, Hannah had prayed, you read about the story, Hannah had prayed for a son, God gives her Samuel, and in her praying, there comes a point where she almost, she almost is beside herself, and she says, God, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. He'll be yours. And that's what happens. So then when the child goes over, Pharaoh's daughter's compassion was not a momentary feeling. You can imagine that, that she sees the baby, she goes goo-goo-ga-ga over the baby, and she goes, oh yeah, let's do something, and then maybe later she changes her mind. No, her moment of compassion was not just momentary. It wasn't just based on the look of the child. She had made a commitment, I will take this child in. So she takes him in as her own. And no doubt that must have raised questions no doubt Pharaoh maybe asked questions. People would have asked questions. She would have had to organise things in order to look after Moses. But it's a wonderful example of commitment. It's a wonderful example of sometimes we can say things we're going to do and then in the end we just can't follow through. Just it gets a bit difficult. Oh, yeah. I know I was doing that, but I'm going to do something else now. She took in this child as her own. So it's an interesting story. Pharaoh had made this decision to kill all the boys in Egypt 
And yet the boy who would become the saviour of Egypt gets raised in his own home. How bizarre. Only God could do that. So there's a couple of really clear points of application that I will mention. And it's two questions. The first question is this. How do you handle trials? How do you handle trials? How do you handle things when they're difficult? And we all go through them. You go through difficulties in your life, in your work situation, your home situation, your relationship. Something's not going quite right. How do you handle those difficulties? What do you do? Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, the, the really key thing here, and the thing that we must take away from this, if nothing else, is God used the very circumstances and situation that Moses' parents found themselves in to bring about the salvation and deliverance for Moses and also for the people of God. You can't disregard or underestimate God's power to use your circumstances in that kind of way. You see, without the cruel decree that Pharaoh had put upon the people, Moses' parents would never have put him in a basket and sent him down the Nile. They would never have done that. It would not have even entered their heads but for the fact that there was this decree that meant that they felt forced to do something. They would never have relied on God in that way. Oh, we're, we're not trusting the Nile, we're trusting God. They would never have done that. God uses Pharaoh's cruel decree to bring Moses to the point where he can become the deliverer. You see, many of us get the idea of trials and sacrifices and, and we understand it. In theory, at least, we get it. We understand that, oh, yeah, Christian life, yeah, it's a bit difficult at times, blah, 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 blah. I get it. But in reality, our response in trials is often one that is not so understanding of it. Have you ever said to yourself, I know I have, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through these struggles? I'm battling against the enemy. Maybe I'm doing things right, and so I'm battling against the enemy. Why is God punishing me this way? What have I done? How can I get out of this situation? And so often our response when we come out of a difficult situation is, man, despite everything, I've come through all those difficulties and all those trials. Hallelujah. We rarely consider this. It was not despite the trials that you came through to that point of maturity. It was precisely because of them. It was in the trial that God did the work. It wasn't like God's trying to bless you. God's blessing you, blessing you, and then sometimes things just seem to get in the way of all the blessing God's sending my way. Difficulties seem to come. I don't understand it. Why would all these difficulties come when God is blessing me, when God is so good? We said earlier, we talked about how good God is. You talk about how gracious and kind he is. And all of that is true. But as John pointed out, God is also holy. And the way God matures his people is through trials. You see, if you want to be 
if you wanted to be a great footballer, and once upon a time I, I was going to say I was a great footballer, I wasn't actually a great footballer at all, but I wanted to be, it, it would be worth looking at someone like, you could, you could look at Lionel Messi, you could look at David Beckham, and, and, you, and they could be heroes that you could want to emulate. If you want to, if you want to make a difference in the world, you want to change the world, and maybe you're politically motivated. You you could look at President Obama and go, "Oh man, I've just seen how he did that. Oh man, that's great. I could I could do that kind of thing." I mean, you might not get there, but you could do that kind of thing in your own way. Your hero of politics might be him. Your your hero for sport might be this person. But if you're a Christian, your hero is a man called Jesus. And Jesus achieved all that he achieved precisely through the trial, through the sacrifice, and through the suffering. He didn't achieve it by skidding over the top and God just loving him every moment. He achieved it through the trial. Not, not despite the trial, despite everything Jesus made it, because of everything Jesus made it. It's very, very different. And he is our example. And sometimes we can live in a little bit of a world, a Christian culture that sort of developed, and it's partly related to our culture, which is very positive and encouraging, and everything's going for good, and God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, that kind of thing, yeah? And God is good, but God matures you to goodness through trouble, and through your response to trouble, and your response to difficulty. Our salvation and freedom were not won despite Jesus' horrible suffering at the cross, but because of it. He didn't save us so that we could be set free from difficulty, but in order that we could know him through difficulty. It's there. Romans 5, 2 to 5 talks about you should rejoice in your sufferings. James 1, 2 to 4 says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Now, I don't say that to me. Say, oh, my goodness. I come to church to be picked up, not brought down. But I'm trying to bring a message that says the true understanding of Christianity is the embracing of that which is difficult. Because you find God there more than anywhere else. That would be my own experience. Trials and difficulties themselves don't teach you much if you don't respond well to them. They don't teach you much. Difficult circumstances handled in a godly way will lead you to maturity. Difficult circumstances handled in an ungodly ungodly way won't. The fact that you go through something in and of itself doesn't mean you mature. The fact that you go through something and you recognize God is using that very thing to teach you something, you might mature through it. God might help you through it. I think of my own two just examples from my own life. First of all, uh, um, one of the things that, that Pauline and I, we, we came to this conclusion many years ago, and it seems a bit odd when I think about it now, but we came to this conclusion that we would work on our marriage. Not that just we'd be married, but we would work on it. We would actively 
talk about it and, and work on it, work on the relationship. And some of you know that, and some of you think, my goodness, that's all you do. You just talk about your marriage. Yeah? And, and we do lots of that. And we didn't do that simply because we, had, we were so in love with each other. We just thought, let's just work on this relationship. It's just so wonderful. We partly did that because we saw so many marriages fail who didn't do that. That was part of our motivation. We saw things that didn't work. And we went, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. That could be us. And therefore, if that's not going to be us, if we're not going to end up in that situation where our relationship might work or might not work, it just depends, depending on what things come in, if if we're not going to be in that situation, we will work on this. We will make this something so we're not, it's not by chance that it works or it doesn't work. We'll work on it. And so we did it, and we partly did it because of that reason. I, I remember when we first came to Beacon, and it wasn't easy for us when we first came to Beacon. We'd left this big church, came to this small church, and uh, I remember uh, coming out of our, our, the, the old church we were at, King's Church in Catford. I remember borrowing um, like a flip chart and stuff, and I remember, I remember coming out of the church with my flip chart and my books and bags, and, and it all fell on the floor, Yeah. <laughs> And there was a couple of guys from the church that were just walking the other way who, who were still at King's. And they'd never seen me like that. I was on the floor trying to pick everything up, trying to sort it all out. They'd never seen... To them, I was the pastor. I was a pastor. Yeah? Suddenly, the, one of the pastors is on the floor picking up papers and books. God humbles you when he needs to. And we came here, and I realized very quickly, oh, my goodness, God, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. I, re- I realise that. Yeah? I put a bit too much into that thing. I don't, I don't have what it takes. Do you know what that did for me? That drove me to my knees. I don't have many other places to go, but it drove me to my knees. And it was almost like God didn't put me through that, and th- despite all of those difficulties I came through, it was because of those difficulties that I got on my knees. It was precisely in the difficulty that I got on my knees. And I discovered, oh... There is a whole new God to discover. (laughs) There's a whole new relationship to be had. There's a whole new thing to walk in that I just was not aware of when I hadn't realised that, oh, the difficulties are part of how he trains. They're part of how he does it. And that was the situation for Moses. These sovereign foundations. So the question... Second question. What were the circumstances of your birth and your early years? Would you rather forget them? When you look back on your life, are there things about it that you just want to forget? Oh, don't don't, don't remind me of that. I don't want to remember those things. Are there things that you just think, no, God was not in those things? God was not there. But thankfully, I came through those things. You see, that verse, all things work together for good, includes all those things that you would rather forget about how you were raised, about things that have happened to you. God works all things for good. And he does that for those who love him, the Bible says. So if you love God, he is working all things together 
for good. Israel didn't realise it, but even through the persecution and the oppression of Pharaoh, God was working everything for good. Everything. It was all going to come for good. Because ultimately God is good. But the way we get there is often the thing that we find challenging. Don't bury your past. Don't have big areas of your life that you do not, you do not deal with. You do not face up to. Because if you do that, you are missing out on some very fundamental things of what it means to be Christian. That is that God is in everything you do. Every situation. I was speaking to a guy who I know well. I was counselling him. He's a, a young black guy, really good guy. But, but he often reminded me of a time when he was 14 years old and, and he, was, he suffered quite a bad racist attack. He was in the street and a number of people jumped him. He was 14, but a number of men jumped him and smashed his head against a car and all this kind of thing. And, and we're talking about this years later. And I said to him this. He said, oh, yeah, I'm learning to forgive and all of those kind of things. I said, have you realised or have you thought about the fact that God was with you when that happened? It wasn't like it happened outside of God and then God comes after. God was with you. God was there. And he was like, oh, I hadn't thought that. I said, you need to get that kind of perspective. You need to understand how broad God is. It's not just about all the nice, the nice things God does and then the horrible things the devil does. God is with you in every situation you go through. And you need to, at times, just face up to that. God, I don't understand why. Moses' parents might have thought this. I don't understand why. We've got to this stage where we're having to abandon our son. It makes no sense to us. But I trust you are with us. You see, that promise of God's presence, that he works things for good, it's a promise for the believer. And the promise for the believer is to live in the truth of it. If you're a believer here, if you love Jesus and you're a believer, don't live in a way that doesn't acknowledge that truth. You might as well not know the truth. Don't live as though it isn't true that God is with you, that God works things for good. If you're not a believer here today, the challenge is for you to come and live under that wonderful promise that God works all things for good for those who love him. Live under that promise. Do you love God? If you do, are you living according to his ways? This promise is there for you. You see, God wants to take your life and my life and he wants to shape it and he wants to use it for his purpose. But to do that, you must understand your hero and mine, your example and mine, gets his spurs through suffering and sacrifice. He doesn't get it any other way. Jesus was obedient to death. Not that I didn't have to die, but I didn't have to die that death. In order that I could have a relationship with God, yes. But I still have to come through obedience and sacrifice. That's the way it is. 
for the Christian. Let's pray. Just want to give just just literally a few moments for us to reflect on this morning, whether it's something that maybe I've said or something that came out through the worship or one of the words or during the prayer time, that you may want to respond to God. I just want to give you a moment to be able to do that. This morning, just in your hearts, you can respond in your hearts to God. Whatever the Holy Spirit has brought to light, you need to bring it back to God. You need to pray into it. Father, for each one of us, I want to pray that we would have, even in this moment, uh, an encounter with the Holy Spirit, fresh revelation, maybe fresh determination, maybe something that releases us, sets us free, when we recognise that through every situation you are there. And you bring us to maturity through them, not despite them. So I pray, Father, that every person here will know that you are with them and that you mean all things for good. You work good in everything, out of everything. And Lord, I pray where some of us look back on our own upbringing, our own circumstances of our birth, our early years, the sovereign foundations, the things that we could not control. Father, I pray you would help us to see you in that and that that would strengthen our faith as we look to the future. Just as you were with me then, you will be with me now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.